Oh, you know what that means. It's time for another episode of Truth in a Thousand Words or Less. Thank you, Rage Against the Machine. Thank you. That's right, folks. It is uh, it is time for Truth in a Thousand Words or Less. Thank you. I am Stephen Craig. I am your host and author of Truth in a Thousand Words or Less. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Keep, keep it down in there, folks. Keep it down. Um, thank you so much. Uh, today, I am uh, incredibly lucky and fortunate uh, to be joined by the Reverend Dr. Uh, Marsha Ledford. Uh, you're going to absolutely... In, Absolutely love the conversation that uh, she and I had earlier this week. Um, but before I get there, uh, by the way, I I believe I missed her title. It is the uh, her Marsha's full title is the Reverend Doctor Marsha Ledford, civil rights attorney. Uh, and you'll understand when you listen to the interview just why that's incredibly important. She is an unbelievably intelligent woman. Um, with uh, a lot to say on today's topic. Uh, today's topic is the, if you will, the the way of uh, religious conformity, the notion that um, inevitably religion hinges upon um, our desire and our belief, our desires to make our beliefs conform with those of others, um, and it's a little bit of a questioning of organized religion, and so. Um, uh, Marsha was a particularly insightful guest in this. But before I get to uh, my interview with Marsha, um, let me uh, go ahead and uh, let me go ahead and give you the persuasion of the Christ. Years ago, while writing for the Summit Daily, I penned a piece about one brother Nathaniel. By the way, if you if you don't know him, I highly urge you to look him up online. <laughs> He's something of a local legend in these parts, uh, standing on various intersections throughout the county, adorned in full clerical, clerical vestments, replete with liturgical cassock and hat, and waving a crucifix at passers-by, or gesticulating frantically but jovially at, jovially at a sign he has drawn up extolling the virtues of finding Jesus as our Lord and Savior. One can only hope as they turn the corner into the adjoining parking lot that he has at least some sense to be wearing enough long underwear beneath all that regalia. But something in his wild, desperate eyes tell you he probably isn't. I have often wondered just what compels him to stand out there for hours on end, straining to make eye contact with the passengers in each passing vehicle all in the hopes of catching their attention for one brief shining moment, a moment in which he can persuade them of a life devoted to Christ. I mean, what does he really think is going to happen? Just what power of transformation does he actually hope to wield? Is it like some dismissive teenager is going to suddenly roll down their window and think to themselves, you know, I've never really believed in Jesus or anything, but suddenly seeing that crazy guy hanging out in the street, I've changed my mind. Maybe I should start going to church or something. Okay, sure. Brother Nathaniel is clearly just some pathetic loon roaming the streets of Summit County in a decades-long chaotic quest to convert the heathen masses. But is he really much different from most of other religious adherents? Yes, when I did research on him for the column, I came across his anti-Semitic writings with pieces like Why the Jews Killed Jesus. That's... An actual piece by Brother Nathaniel, by the way. 
But that seems relatively harmless when compared to the atrocities committed in the tradition of persuading others to follow a particular religion or another. History is indeed filled with wars and torturous crusades waged in the name of religious indoctrination. Why is it, then, that we have such a fierce desire to compel others to join us in our faith? Why must we force others to believe as we believe? The answer lies in two human constructs, certainty and conformity. As humans, we detest ambiguity. We prefer the safe semblance of certainty, even when it is patently erroneous. But the bigger questions of theological importance, questions like, is there a God? What happens when I die? Is there a meaning to life? And what makes Krispy Kreme donuts so damn delicious? These questions don't have discrete, verifiable answers. Rather, they dwell in the realm of ambiguity. Sure, adherents of any particular faith, including perhaps most conclusively atheism, will tell you that they have the one true and right response, that their path is the one true path. But anyone who has the intellectual muster to dare think for themselves knows that this is complete and utter bullshit. No one has the right answer because we inherently have only the capacity to speculate as to where the truth may lie. And as human beings, that bugs the everlasting shit out of us. And so we come to conformity. Conformity is the warm, safe blanket we clung to as a child. It gives us the illusion of security and certainty in our beliefs, when really there is none. The more others share our beliefs, the more we feel secure in the unavoidable certitude of our adherence. In 1951, Solomon Ash conducted an experiment to investigate the extent to which social pressure from a majority group could affect a person to conform. Ash used a lab experiment to study conformity, wherein students participated in a vision test, or what they thought was a vision test anyways. Using a line judgment task, Ash put a, na a naive participant in a room with seven confederates or stooges. In other words, the... the Confederate, the, um, the naive participant, thought everybody was uh, um, part of the study, but actually the rest of them were just stooges. The Confederate had agreed in advance what their responses would be when presented with the line task. The real participant did not know this and was led to believe that the other seven Confederate stooges were also real participants like themselves. Each person in the room had to state aloud which comparison line, A, B, or C, was most like the target line. The answer was always obvious. The real participant sat at the end of the row and gave his or her answer last. In 12 of the 18 trials, the Confederates intentionally gave wildly incorrect responses. On average, about one-third of the participants who were placed in this situation went along and conformed with the clearly incorrect majority on the critical trials. Over the 12 critical trials, about 75% of participants conformed at least once, and only 25% of participants never conformed. When asked later why they had conformed despite the fact that their answer was clearly wrong, respondents gave two reasons. One, because they wanted to fit in with the group, and two, because they believed the group was better informed than they were. So if people are prone to intellectual conformity, even a case of easily discernible objective truth, imagine the propensity for doing so when the answers are anything but certain. Overwhelmed by the ambiguity of theological postulations, 
many people simply fall in line with adopting the religious faith of their family or surrounding community. This explains the preponderance of distinct religious geographical regions of faith. For example, in the United States, 65% of the population describes themselves as some sort of Christian, whereas 80% of India is Hindu. Rather than look for answers on our own, we adhere to the ones that are given to us. It's just easier and more comforting that way. But is this really faith? No, true faith lies in that 25% of people from the Ash study who refuse to conform whatsoever. In them lies the essence of what it truly means to have faith, for they are the ones who search for their own answers, the ones that correspond with their own experience of the world and the riddles contained therein. Doing so takes the courage of embracing ambiguity, of knowing that we know nothing, but it is a courage that is well rewarded, for it through that quest for truth, that meeting begins to shape, take shape, whatever shape that may indeed be. And when you settle into that knowledge, you will find a peace and contentment from within, rather than an unquenchable need to shout it at cars passing by. In any case, I feel like I should be uh, shouting at cars passing by uh, with my interview coming up uh, with the uh, Dr. Reverend Marsha Ledford, uh, civil rights attorney. Um, it's a fascinating interview, folks, and with no further ado, um, let's uh, let's hit the interview. Well, welcome back again, Truthers. We are, uh, I am incredibly uh, lucky to be joined here by Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford, civil rights attorney. And um, we are, a, what an incredible interview. Uh, Dr. Uh, Reverend, can I start that over? Yeah. Okay, I can just cut it all right there. Uh, welcome back, Truthers. We are very fortunate to be joined today by Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford, civil rights attorney. Obviously, that's a fairly long title. Uh, Reverend Dr. Ledford, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and where all of those titles come from. Sure. And please, Stephen, call me Marsha. Be happy um, to. So I, I sensed a call to ordain ministry as a as a kid, I was a church kid, very active. Um, uh, but of course, when I was coming of age, I was not seeing women at the pulpit and the altar. So I decided to go into law because I thought it would be a good helping profession. And I became a civil rights attorney. At the same time as I was uh, finishing my law degree and all of that, uh, I came out as a lesbian. And met my, I had met my wife, Linda, at college, and we've been together ever since. We'll be celebrating number 40 next year. Congratulations. Yeah. It's fantastic. And so I did a number of things. I did some business law, but I, I represented the LGBTQ community in a number of ways that were very specific to us. Um, in terms of uh, parent custody, child custody cases where back in the day, LGBT parents were considered unfit just because of their sexual orientation and often faced losing even uh, um, visitation rights with a monitor present. So um, it was a tough time and AIDS had raised its ugly head and so there were a lot of things 
that needed to be done legally around that, including Social Security supplemental benefits um, and when that the first case of that in our Detroit catchment area uh, for a fellow who uh, died relatively soon after that. Um, but that did a lot for him emotionally to get those benefits. So um, I became increasingly frustrated that you can't argue the gospel in court and expect to be successful. And the call to ordination and the poking prodding of the Holy Spirit uh, did not stop. So in my late 40s, I went to seminary and I was ordained. And my first, uh, my first cure, we call your uh, the congregation you're in charge with your cure. You are the curer of souls. Mm -hmm. So my first cure was with the Latino communities in Southwest Detroit. And my civil rights experience um, was very much informing me. And um, I was appalled at what I was seeing our uh, federal government do in terms of separating families because of our draconian immigration laws. So I went back uh, to Pacific School of Religion to do a doctor's ministry in political theology. Do you see an overlap between the, um, the biases against uh, not only the LGBTQ community, but the Latino community as well? Do you see that? Do you see overlap? Oh, uh, yeah, in the, there, in the there biases are. that are there. Mm -hmm. Where, where yeah. are those overlaps? There are parallels. Um, well, you know, the traditional family is basically taught across Christianity, uh, and that's certainly true within the the Roman Catholic Latino communities. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, and many Latinos leave Roman Catholicism to go to um, a pretty conservative evangelicalism. So yes, it's. Um, it's there too. There's no question about it. Um, let me ask you a question, Marshall. What do you see as the role of social justice in our community? Well, <clears throat> given that you went back right to get, you went back to go to get a law degree, obviously with the seemingly with the intention, right, of trying to right some of the wrongs that yeah. you saw in our society. What right. do you see as the role of social justice in our community? Well, I think the role of so social justice is to uh, achieve justice, which is different than equality. How so? There, How do you see those two terms as being well, different? Well, there's, a, there's a, a, um, I can't think of the gentleman's name right now, but I put one of his uh, depictions in my dissertation, actually. And it's, it's uh, a set of people um, looking over a fence. So in the, in the first one, everybody gets the same height of a, you know, a booster to stand on. Mm -hmm. So the short guy still can't see over the fence and the really tall guy can totally see over the fence and the middle guy can just see over the fence. That's equality where the footing is presumptively the same and enough for everybody. Then there's justice. So all these different people also have a booster, but it's, uh, it correlates with their height. So if they're super short, they get a tall one. And if they're super tall, they get a short one. That's and if really, 
<clears throat> okay. If they're medium, they get a, you know, kind of a medium one. Right. But it allows everybody to see over the fence. That's justice. And so that's you, the role of social justice in my view. You're, you, you would advocate more in the direction of our society moving in the direction of justice than in equality. Yeah, well, I think when you have justice, then you have equality, but you don't get to justice through, you know, treating everybody the same because people all have a different start line. And in our country, people of color typically start farther back than white folks do. I did an exercise. This, you'll it, find this almost not a tendency. I mean, that's almost irrefutable. Well, that's what happens. Right. Right. So let, let me tell you about this little, this is a cute, it's a quick little story I meant to okay. say. Um, we, in seminary, my classmates and I all stood uh, sh shoulder to shoulder and um, uh, it's, it's a predominantly African-American school. Okay. Okay. So our professor started asking us questions. If you are not the first person to get a bachelor's degree step forward if you're not the first person in your family line to get a bachelor's degree step forward right if you hold other graduate degrees step forward because i already had a graduate degree i had a law degree right okay. <laughs> okay. if you've inherited property step forward if you grew up in a house that your parents owned step forward and it went on and on like this and so i know i know people can't see me but if you envision a side view of this line so here's marcia and a few of my white classmates right and we keep going forward right and everyone Con conversely if if you couldn't step forward you had to step backward right and there was a clear delineation, I can only imagine, right, between... Oh, it was, it was just really pathetic. Right. <laughs> and then at the end, the professor said, all right, Ledford, everybody calls me Ledford, I don't know why. Anyway, Ledford, why are you up there? And I said, because I'm white. And then a classmate of mine, African-American woman, came up to me afterwards, and she just gave me a hug, and she said, you have no idea what it was like for me and the rest of your African-American classmates to hear an intelligent, compassionate white person say that. I, um, it's, it's interesting. I think this past summer, you saw that there was more, there was more, um, a greater heightened awareness of that oh, yeah. disparity. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, you, you, I was talking to a friend of mine about it this past week, and it was uh, interesting that there's, I live in a, in a mountain community, which is predominantly liberal, um, about as, about as we were talking about, about as liberal as it gets likely in any, you know, small town demographic in this country. <clears throat> um, and he was teaching a book um, called Stamps. And uh, and it became uh, controversial to the point where parents called in about it. It was about racial equity and about the long standing, uh, the long standing historical um, oppression that doesn't just exist at it on the sur superficial level. The things that oh, yeah. we all 
can know and, re- and re- readily recognize, but mm-hmm. that it's much more subtle and subversive than that. And, and yeah. it's uh, much more um, persistent throughout every part of it. And uh, one of the parents call, uh, started, started a lawsuit <laughs> about the book. And um, it, the humorous ending to this story was that he, um, he agreed, said that he would settle the lawsuit if the school would pay $1 million in damages and um, give a public apology to every white person in the county. Ah. And I, I, found, I couldn't help but laugh um, at that last part because it's so preposterous, right? I mean, no, yeah. clearly. And yet, um, and yet that I think is the death throes of racism. We've seen that in the last, mm-hmm. you know, the way that people reacted in 2016 and the political, on the political spec, um, spectrum that you see that, that there's a real, and, and people um, wanting to label that as Antifa and to equate uh, what happened uh, with Black Lives Matter versus, uh, you know, the insurrection at the Capitol, um, that there's been that, uh, there's been that reaction to it. But I do, I do think that we've progressed significantly as a society to at least understanding that. But I wanted to get back because I thought it was a really um, interesting analogy in regards when you were uh, discriminating between uh, equality and, and social justice, um, the notion of the risers, right? And to some degree or another, the, the way it's been described to me is, right, the idea of everybody starting a race, right? If life is a giant race, mm-hmm. that we all get to start on the same starting line. Mm-hmm. Um, and I very much agree um, that we all get should be at that same starting line and that that getting people there is far more complex than just hey you get to go to a good school Mm -hmm. right or just it's far more comprehensive and pervasive throughout all of society to really genuinely get everybody um, whether that be people in the latino community which is why i asked about that right that those Mm -hmm. those folks um, and the language barrier that some of them right have Language and citizenship barriers, yeah. Right, exactly, right? The ability to be deported for some of them at any particular time, right? Any given moment, yeah. Right, has got to be a persistent fear that inevitably hinders them in terms of their employment. It hangs Um, like a pall in the community. A true albatross, right, around their Mm -hmm. neck. Mm -hmm. uh, And then the stigma of over 200 years of oppression when it comes to Black folks, the Mm -hmm. stigma still today, you were talking about, you were taking several steps forward, but as a, um, as a member of the LGBTQ community, you've, Mm -hmm. you've right, had uh, your own, um, you've had your own limitations placed upon you, which we'll come back Mm -hmm. to. Yeah. Um, But I, if we do get people to the genuinely having the same riser, right? Like to where Mm -hmm. they're all on an equal platform, but some of us have different strengths and different weaknesses. Like for example, it, when you, I thought it was a funny analogy because if I if I'm at a t- concert, I'm not a tall guy, but mm-hmm. I can't be mad at the person who is in front of me and and be like, well, I should be able to see over you because mm-hmm. you have to duck down mm-hmm. because of the fact that you're tall. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I, I was born short. I can't I can't help the things that I'm born with per se, right? Like mm-hmm. those. Are you suggesting that social justice should should some degree or another um, even even out even our biolog like our genetics? Well, if we're talking about height, 
uh, you're taking me more literally than what I no, was no, talking no. about. Uh, I mean, things like but, intelligence or, right? Well, you know, uh, the Supreme Court looks at the immutable characteristics like gender uh, right. in determining whether they're, you know, the 14th Amendment uh, promise of equal protection under laws being met. Mm. Uh, you know, so discriminating against somebody because of their skin color, which is an immutable characteristic, right? Uh, most definitely is a factor in, in determining if the civil rights of that individual have been violated. So yes, things that we can't change have become factors in uh, equal protection analysis. Uh, the pregnancy cases, for example, um, race, alienage, and national origin, those kinds of things have, have been part of that, uh, the body of constitutional law involving equal protection. Mm -hmm. But if you take, take other characteristics outside of, because um, I think that we very much see eye to eye, and I, I I would certainly hope that a vast majority of my audience at least uh, fall, would agree that like the, when we're talking about discriminating against um, allowing differences of outcome based upon gender, race, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, sexual orientation, any of those things. Um, but would you advocate for the notion that there should be equal outcomes for people even beyond, even beyond that, that we all should, for example, you know, we have, um, if I have uh, two students uh, or two people, two young people who are in an athletic competition, um, two, you know, and they're, they're playing basketball against each other, one kid's just a better athlete than the other, has nothing to do, right? Should we advocate for equal outcomes for both of those people? Is that justice? Or is it equal that, hey, you get to play on the same court, you had the same training you had, right? The same access to a basketball. Um, is that enough to provide to get to provide the same background and support for two individuals and then let their individual genetic makeup, you know, inevitably define who they become and what they, what the outcomes for them are. That's a tricky question. Yeah. <laughs> um, first of all, I would say that um, there doesn't, I don't think we can guarantee uh, the achievement of excellence for everybody. Right. Uh, because although there's the riser, as you called it, what still has to tap into all of this is one's abilities and gifts and, you know, individual right. unique gifts. And those are always, uh, going to be in play. But if two people are applying for a job and the door will not even open for the person of color, say, and the white person automatically gets an interview, that's right. where this booster comes in because we're looking at uh, immutable characteristics that are precluding someone from an opportunity. Right. Okay. Right. I, I have no problem with white people sometimes getting jobs. 
right? But we it happens. People, right. Sometimes people are more qualified, and <laughs> sometimes they, and they're I do, white. Right? Yeah. But um, but we really do have to do. I think where that notion of equality comes in is that we are um, we underestimate how pervasive, just how pervasive the disadvantages can be in our society. Uh, yeah, very often people of color don't get any kind of a riser or boost at all. None. <laughs> Quite the okay. opposite. They get a ditch. <laughs> they get a hole to stand in. Right. So, they get a hole to stand in in the ground. Right. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, some person in uh, Colorado is suing because uh, this it, our, our history of slavery is too sensitive and upsetting a subject for their children and right. the school district has to pay a million dollars and apologize to every white person in the community. Well, that's just one of the most absurd things I've heard so far. This, <laughs> well, at least today, it's the most absurd thing I've heard so far. Well, the, I mean, the, fortunately, uh, I, I can imagine that, the, that it will be successful. Um, well, it's about, it's about fear, ultimately. It's about fear. Right. Fear, well, fear makes people cruel and it makes people do incredibly stupid things. It's, uh, have, you ever, have you ever read Huck Finn? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I used to love teaching that book and it's obviously tough uh, to teach to young people because you have to get them to understand the satire. Um, yeah. But it's when Pap comes back um, Huck's father, who's an abusive alcoholic, right? Mm -hmm. and, and a complete waste of space and, and oxygen. Um, and he comes back and after he's seen a black man vote, he says he's never gonna vote again. And mm -hmm. he's a complete racist. Why is he a racist? He's a racist because he knows that the only person that he can feel superior over is it, at, right? He knows that he is at the very bottom of society. Mm -hmm. Hey, at least I've got that. And so I think that is what continues to keep racism alive. Even the police in, system. Right. Yeah. Right. I got to have somebody below me. Yep. I had a colleague call it the Blitzel effect. Um, right. You have to, everybody has to have somebody as they walk through the door that they can wipe their boots on. Yep. Um, given your background and uh, your LGBTQ status has, um, do you think that that's ever been in conflict with your religion? Oh, for heaven's sakes, yes. Well, that's what I, I, right, exactly. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Elaborate so, as much as possible. Uh, I, like I told you, I was a church kid from as long as I can remember. I was always, you know, in the youth group and doing stuff. And it was very important to me. My parents had so, a- Growing up, what, would, what denomination? American Baptist. Okay. okay. Uh, and how old were you when you when you were fully aware that you were? Uh, I knew that I, something was different when I was about six. Even that young, okay. Uh huh. And then uh, I just felt this affinity to women. I just um, it, it was just very strong. Okay. It, it wasn't sexual, but it was just wanting to be in the company of women. I just felt very comfortable there. Okay. And. Um, I would say then probably by 11, I was having some inklings. And then by the time I was about 17, I knew. So now you're being raised in a church that very much, I mean, the messaging, I assume, uh, from my understanding of baptism, is it was the messaging was pretty clear that what you were feeling, what you knew was you, was morally wrong and would essentially, I, 
I would assume that you were being told that you, that would yeah. get you into hell. It was, um, I, I was in a flavor of the Baptist denomination that was not as judgmental and damning. It was, um, it was a, a little bit more cerebral approach to things. And so I didn't hear the bashing that a lot of people did, but okay. I knew where the path, I knew where the passages were. And I knew, I knew what they said, or I knew, I thought I knew what they said. And so, um, and we never talked about it. When you say church. we never, oh, you never talked about it. It was, it was never preached. It was never discussed in Sunday school. It was never, the youth minister never talked to it. It was just not on the radar. And I knew what, that that meant that it was so bad that we couldn't even talk about it. And I kept it to myself. I didn't tell anybody in the youth group um, what was going on. So the silence was even more damning. Than, yeah. Right. Yeah. And there were, and I looked for books and there weren't really any books. I think the first one that I read was Loving Someone Gay, which was very good, but it wasn't necessarily theological. Okay. Um, and so um, I was, I felt very alone and very, unsure of myself and actually had a pretty good size blow up with God and, you know, was angry that um, God had done this to me and, you know, what was I going to do? And I, I really felt that I was going to have to choose. I didn't see how I could be, continue to be a Christian and be a lesbian. Uh, then I met my first partner, and then I was really in sort of psychological crisis. Uh, and then, and because of the the crisis and the upsetness, uh, we broke up. And then I met Linda, and um, you know, we just went away. We both decided we'd just go away from church for a while and just uh, find our sea legs, as it were. And we found a, a, a LGBT community in Detroit that we hung out with. Um, and a lot of those folks at the time, okay, we have AIDS. Uh, people are, uh, men are being thrown out of their families because they are um, tested positive. And it was a, a, a hard time. It was a hard time. But what I learned about the resilience of the, of the community was that um, we are incredibly strong and compassionate and um, we made our own families and we had our own Thanksgiving dinner and we, you know, we had our own uh, picnics and stuff in the summertime and we created community and family for ourselves. So after a while, we decided to try some churches and see if we could go somewhere. And one of them was the Episcopal Cathedral in Detroit. And uh, it was a great mix for our two traditions, strong tradition in preaching and the liturgical tradition of Roman Catholicism. And it, it was just, uh, it just fit. And so we became Episcopalians. Um, and over time, the church became even bolder and more accepting. And it just strengthened us and strengthened us. It just was a really important it's, it, I'm sure that it, it was, it had a saving element for me because I really went through a huge spiritual crisis trying to decide how, if I could be myself and still be a Christian. Why, why be, 
what was your attachment to the Christian element of it, right? Like the organized religion, right? The, um, here you have a, a set of beliefs um, that seem entirely in conflict with your own, at least as you were raised in them, right? In the Baptist tradition, right? So much mm -hmm. so it was you, who you, the very core, part of the very core of who you were um, was, was so verboten that it was to not even be spoken of. Mm -hmm. um, why, why go back to that source for spirituality and spiritual truth? Well, first of all, it's what you know, you know, uh, we, we all, if we've grown up in any kind of religious tradition, um, a lot of us will change a denomination, but we don't leave our religion. Right. Okay. We, a lot of us find a better expression for us. I think that's partly why there are so many different things because uh, different things speak to different people and whether it's Christian or Judaism or Islam or Jainism or whatever you wanna say. Um, and typically there's some sort of a spark that um, happens. And so I, it was Jesus that I couldn't give up. Why, why unable to give up Jesus? What part of that, what part of it was, uh, was there for you? I just, I, at the risk of sounding like a Baptist, I just love Jesus. Um, I, his teachings, the way that he helped everybody, the way that he did not reject anybody, uh, the way that he gave himself up out of love for what is wrong in the world. He was the ultimate public theologian. Mm. He was the ultimate political theologian. He challenged the system. And some would say, well, he did a bad job because they ended up off in him. Well, but you know, right? That, that, that's a that's a little bit different conversation, which we can get to. But the the important thing was he saw how people were marginalized and removed from community, and God is all about community. So Jesus was there to teach us to take care of one another, and if you are a Trinitarian, God, the Godhead is a community: the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sustainer. We have this uh, dance that goes on between the three entities, the three persons of the, of the Godhead that work together in community. Right. So, you know, uh, and God created us so that God was not alone. So all of these lessons, all of these amazing things that Jesus did, taking tremendous courage, patience, uh, it's, I, I could never, I could never give him up. <laughs> it's interesting. I, um, you know, we, when we wrote a little bit back and forth, I probably told you, you you've read the column. So, you know, I, um, my own personal, I, I was raised in the Episcopal church. Uh, okay. I've been an altar boy as a young, as a young lad. All right. Um, I didn't know this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I found myself um, having questions that Jesus, that the church and and I couldn't have come from a more accepting tradition. Um, my, the minister um, who I had was uh, growing up with is just a fantastic man. I was friends with his kids in school. He's a good human being, mm -hmm. um, and I've seen a lot of good done in the name of Jesus. And mm -hmm. heaven knows, um, 
no pun intended, but heaven knows that Jesus, I, I, I even now, um, as I said, I, I inevitably found that Jesus did it. Uh, Christianity didn't answer the questions I had and didn't, didn't um, inevitably that the world as I saw it, my worldview wasn't in, in line with it. It, it. didn't come to the same answers. Okay. Um, and I, as a father of two young people, um, I've always allowed my children to find whatever they wanted. And uh, one of my favorite musicals is, um, is Jesus Christ Superstar. And it, it raised a lot of questions uh, for my daughter about, about Christ, who had, she had had some familiarity, um, but uh, JCS definitely you know, sparked a well of 12, of 12 year old thought. And, uh, and she asked me about it. And I, and I told her, I don't necessarily, um, my own personal belief. And I, I really try to make sure that my kids think for, and come to, especially about religious theological questions that they answer them, however they see fit and come mm-hmm. to whatever answers they, they find. Um, but I told her that I, I didn't necessarily see Jesus within a religious context, but that what he did for marginalized people, like mm-hmm. Jesus, that's a pretty good, Jesus is a pretty good role model for how to live your life, yeah. right? Whether you see him in that context. And so my question for you is, do you, can you separate those two? Can you, on the one hand, um, ascribe to Jesus as, um, as a, as a, if you will, a role model of how we live our lives as a set of morals and, and values and beliefs, um, and separate that from who, uh, from the role of son of God as a, re- okay. as a religious figure. All right. That's, it's an interesting question. Um, and I think you're talking about humanism, like Jesus was just a right on human. He was a a really great human being. A good dude. (laughs) He was a good dude. So why can't we just follow him and imitate him? Um, Right. You know, there's a really wonderful little book called The Imitation of Christ. Um, and Martin Luther referred to us all as little Christs. In other words, at least that's what we should be aiming for is to act like, you know, little Jesuses. Um, I'd like to say little Jesuses instead of little Christs because I don't think the crucifixion is uh, really necessary. But um, I, for me, Jesus has always had that place of um, uh, part of the Trinity, part of the Godhead that I was taught to to uh, worship and uh, adore and obey. So it's hard for me to separate that out, but I understand what you're saying. This is just a part of like I was talking earlier, you know, we get introduced to a faith and a lot of it is just accident of birth. I could have been born in India and exposed to Jainism. And, you know, right now I'd be a Jain living in India. Uh, but I was born to my parents here in Michigan, and uh, they took me to a Baptist church, and that's who I am. Um, I did do some soul searching as a young adult, particularly when Linda and I were in what we call our wilderness time, where we stepped away from church like Jesus did, you know, for 40 days, but it was like four years. Um, 
And I needed that time to look at what other religious traditions were doing. And since then, uh, as part of my seminary experience, I had to do a course in uh, interreligious dialogue. So I learned a lot about the world's religions, all of which have things that I think are admirable and important. Um, and almost all of us uh, around the world have something akin to what Christians call the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In other words, respect everybody. Um, but for me, it needs to have that, that worship component, that uh, opportunity for um, um, spiritual intimacy with my creator. Shouldn't we, it, it's a really fascinating because we, you were referring to if you had been born in India and I, I, I allude to that exactly that. Like the, if you take a look at the, at the globe, even today where we're a far more right connected across the globe uh, society mm -hmm. when um one of my favorite authors is Henry David Thoreau and he and Emerson, right, were two of the first scholars on this point, on this side of the Western, you know, the Western hemisphere to get their hands on Eastern texts, right? Like up right. until, up until a couple hundred years ago, you didn't, you didn't have any access to what, you know, the world's religions. Right. Um, but even that wilderness period, right, for you and your partner, where you go into, shouldn't we all have that, right? Because of just what you were referring to that, um, that there is, and this is what I was getting, alluding to in conformity of belief, right? That this, mm -hmm. that we, instead of, um, to some degree or another, your wilderness period gave you the opportunity to, to say, okay, what do I believe? Not just what have I been told to believe? Yes. I, yes. I, I think it's important to allow yourself a period of soul searching, a, a time where you can really think about what it is that you believe and why. I think knowing that uh, can really help us uh, focus our lives into doing things that are important to us. Right. We are by nature, uh, people, human beings are by nature, uh, they are meaning makers. Meaning making is very important in terms of being a human being. What makes us tick? What's important? Uh, and having that opportunity to soul search, I think is key. It's critical to that. I wasn't sure for a while there if I was gonna remain a Christian because I wasn't, I wasn't sure that I could. And then for a while, I wasn't sure that I wanted to. What, why? Because of the terrible things that many Christians say about LGBT people that I know is a bunch of bull hockey. <laughs> Do you, um, having read the Bible, I'm yeah. sure you've, I, I, I assume that you've done so even more than I do. And I, I really do appreciate like actually returning the text. Mm -hmm. um, what do you, how, where do you feel the Bible stands on the LGBTQ community? Well, I'm going to, uh, first of all, if, if you look at my blog for Pride Month this year. Okay, give people I, the, where they can find it. Uh, politicaltheologymatters.com. That's, okay. and it'll be in the show notes, everybody. I'm going to send Stephen uh, all, the, all the resources that I often mention and it'll all be right there. 
I'll put it all out there for you folks. Go but ahead. if you go, if you go to politicaltheologymatters.com and slash blog, or you can click on the menu and go to blogs. In June, I wrote a series on what we call the seven clobber passages. These are the passages that are used by generally mean-spirited people who want to make LGBT, LGBT people feel bad about themselves and you know make them straight or whatever ridiculous things in their mind. Okay, so there are four in the Old Testament and three in the New Testament. And so I, I recommend the blogs to you because I deal with them uh, and they're sort of grouped. So Leviticus is often, you know, a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman. And um, that's the one my mom used to throw out. By the way. At you? No, no, I'm not gay, but no. Um, no, 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 no. When I would, she and I got in an argument. I wrote about this in one of my blogs way back. And it was one of the moments, you know, like I, I loved my mom passed away four years ago, but um, I, I love my mom very dearly, but that that was difficult for me. Me and my yeah. mom did not see eye to eye. And right. I remember when my mom once told me, um, you know, get, I have nothing personally against the gays. And, and by the way, whenever you say the, and then followed by yeah. any noun, it's not going to be good. Yes, right. <laughs> or if my mother said that, that in somebody's name, that right. was a pro that was good. That person was in, pro in trouble with my mother. Yeah, it's a pro yeah. it's a it's a you're going to say some really racist crap is about to right. come out of your mouth. That's right. Discriminatory. And so, so, uh, so in any case, my mom's like, but you know, they're not getting into heaven. And I I just about lost my my mind at that moment in that discussion mm -hmm. with my mom. And that was one of the passages that my mom turned yeah. to as a defense of her point. And I was like, I don't really care <laughs> what, right. what, what, what the Bible oh. says. So what's, what's behind all of that is, uh, you know, first of all, it's, it's a P document. So it was written when the Israelites were in exile, exile in Babylon. Yeah. And so it's, it's going back many hundreds of years, writing about stuff that happened many hundreds of years before. Right. And the Canaanites were pagans and they worshiped a god, Moloch. Uh, underworld god and the Canaanites were um, thought to sacrifice their children to Moloch. This was a problem for the Israelites. So when they when they enter into the land of Canaan and they've displaced the Canaans to a large degree, they're still interacting with them, and they are some of their practices are rubbing off. And what God says, you know, I'm giving you this land and your job is to have legit legitimately to have children and, um, and you will be blessed. But if you engage in sexual activity that creates either illegitimate children or no children at all, or you sacrifice your children, you're going to get, and I'm literally, this is literally in the text, vomited out of your land. You've got to make a lot of babies. You've got to make a lot of boy babies. You need armies, you know, all of that. So this text talks about male-to-male -male sex in a very specific situation. And the Canaanites practiced a temple cult prostitution, male and female temple prostitutes. God is trying to move them away from these kinds of behaviors to distinguish themselves as Israelites. But in terms to take the, the word homosexual or gay 
and put it in a text that was written 2000 years ago is ridiculous. They did not understand sexual orientation. The society, the tribalism was not built around uh, couples that did not create children. And if you fell away from this prescription to have children, you were gonna lose your land. And ultimately they did because they started worshiping other gods and all the other bad stuff they were doing. So the Old Testament uh, and Sodom and Gomorrah is really a story about very bad ancient hospitality. Okay, it's that's really it's really not about who who what genitals one person has or the other. Okay, it's it's about um, not taking in the stranger from the super hot sun and giving them a, a morsel of of choice bread like Abraham did in the chapter before to the three angels who were strangers. It's about killing the fatted calf. It's about, um, you know, giving them a great big long drink of cool water uh, and, and not offering up their virgin daughters to a, a marauding bunch of, of men. It, that, that's not what the story is about, but it got, um, it's been used pretextually for people with an agenda to make it look like a um, solely a condemnation of male to male sex. Then when we go to St. Paul and his vice lists, and he loves to throw the kitchen sink, you should not gossip and you shouldn't uh, kidnap people and you shouldn't murder and you shouldn't, um, you know, have uh, male to male sex. But to use our terminology, homosexuality was coined in 1869. To take that word and cram it into these other texts is just irresponsible. Well, isn't it, I mean, in the end, right, for the most part, isn't that inevitably the agenda? It's being agenda driven, right? Like the, yeah, you're coming absolutely. with the end result mm -hmm. where you want to end up in terms right. of a moral value system. And then right. you're going back and trying to, um, you know, I, I always used to, as an English teacher, I always tell my students to support their conclusions. Yeah. But you want to get to the conclusion. Right, but you want them to get to the conclusion based upon the material rather than, rather than the other direction yeah. around. And you, you want them to build a, a proof, a, a syllogism right. that's gonna conclusively lead to the end, yeah. Right, but you want them to start with an open-minded premise. And right. to me, um, to me, we, you know, when my mom and I did get into that argument, part of what I told her is I was like, you know, because it frustrated my mom at the end uh, of her life when I, when I told her I, that I was not um, Christian. And um, that I, remember, I remember her even looking up at the sky and, you know, muttering to herself, of like, like she was talking to Jesus about like, you know, save him. And <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm just fine. Thank you. I appreciate your concern. I really do. I love you. And and whatnot, but that's not going to change. It's just not who I am. Um, but I, I was like, whatever, because uh, I am a very spiritual person. I am very religious of my own. I just, um, I'm leery of organized religion as a whole. Mm -hmm. But whatever, um, whatever force um, people believe in, I, I, I do. I am always leery of when religion um, is not based upon love. Any God 
yeah. um, any divine force. The universe as I see it is, um, is inherently a, a, this conflict between love and hate. And as yeah. we move closer and closer to God, we move closer and closer to love. And that means embracing and loving every single human being, not, um, not uh, despite, in spite of who they are, but rather because of who they are, right? Not, not uh, the term of, um, that I think that we need to get past is this idea of acceptance or tolerance. Yes. That to me is total BS. I, I don't, to I tolerate <laughs> some things that I shouldn't, but there did, we should be embracing and loving everybody right. for just who they are. Do you not find, do you, I mean, do you, what, in the Christian community, which one do you think prevails? Do you think that Christianity is used more in embracing the LGBTQ community? or more in, or in, in hating them? Where does that stand in? in uh, well, the country is overwhelmingly um, evangelical or relatively conservative Protestant. And because of that, I would say that it's about, let's say 70% of churches are not accepting of LGBT people. Uh, the ones that are, are being very brave and courageous. Uh, the Episcopal Church, the um, PCUSA Presbyterian Church of the United States, uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the Church of Christ, the Disciples of Christ, uh, and I could go on and on, Universal, Universalist, Uni, Unitarian Universalist. Um, many of these denominations are, are doing wonderful, wonderful work. Uh, but we're still a small percentage uh, comparatively to uh, Protestantism. And so that's a problem. Uh, but you see biblical fundamentalism coming more from uh, that evangelical corner of, the, of Christ's vineyard. So, uh, it, and it's an issue. Let me, I'll tell you a story. When I was in seminary, I used to go to this drop-in center for LGBT youth in a large urban area. And um, uh, I, I was going up the stairs, these really steep stairs. And at the top was a whiteboard. And at the, at the top of the board, it said in cursive, what, how do you feel today? How are you feeling today? And somebody had written in block letters, big block letters, uh, centered both ways, one word, abomination. And this is in a predominantly black city. Um, and the black church has historically been pretty homophobic. And a lot of the kids that go to that drop-in center or live at their live-in residence have been put out of their houses after being discovered as LGBT at the behest of their family's pastor. How does that, when you see, because I have seen, I, I've taught at, a, at Catholic schools twice and I love both of them. Um, and I saw a lot of good being done in the name of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. A lot of good. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I was teaching at, at Mullen High School when Katrina happened. Mm -hmm. And I've never seen a group of young people 
um, with that kind of- uh, This is a Catholic church? A Catholic school, Catholic high school. Yeah. Okay. yeah, and and my kids, the way that those students um, jumped up into social action was tremendous. But I, stories like that where you see um, Jesus being used as a as a right. I hear you are as a civil rights attorney, right, fighting for the mar folks who are marginalized, in, mm -hmm. including your own community, um, and so much damage has been done in the name of Jesus. How does that, how does that reconcile for you on the one hand being a reverend and on the other hand, um, seeing, seeing how Jesus has been used? Well, it's, it, it infuriates me, <laughs> uh, which is why I founded Political Theology Matters and which is why I'm doing this, you know, to write, speak, teach, and preach about the ways that progressive Christians can become more uh, faith greater faith-based advocates in the public square for social justice. Mm -hmm. Typically what happens is uh, in many ways, you know, evangelicals are a lot easier to organize on an issue like abortion or gay rights. Um, and people who are freer thinkers, more progressive minded are not. We are much more like herding cats, but we are also capable of once we know what to do and how to do it, we can be incredibly effective. And so that's what I'm hoping to do is serve as a, a facilitator of folks who are disgusted and fed up enough to learn how to become more engaged in their community, uh, you know, uh, local, state, and federal level, how to get engaged with community organizing, how to, um, you know, make a difference. The problems are super complex, but let me tell you, all of the major movements, all the major social movements that have occurred in the United States, whereby uh, people started acquiring civil rights in layers, okay? Right. Uh, emancipation, women's suffrage, uh, voting rights, um, civil rights in the 60s, uh, LGBT rights in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and the Obergefell decision that finally allowed us to get married after 32 years. Um, all of that happened because a lot of people did a lot of little things along with the big things that happened with the big leaders. But if you sit at a lunch counter and you don't think you're going to make much of a difference, over time you will. All of us will. I think a big part of it, um, in my lifetime, the relationship of our society with the LGBTQ community has changed drastically. Mm -hmm. um, to the point where when I, I was, I've, I remember teaching in, early on in my career, teaching uh, gay students and, and there were only, I was teaching at a boarding school back east. And there were one or two students who were amazingly courageous. Now, I subsequently, I keep in touch with almost all of them. And subsequently, many of them have come out because the world has changed. But like how many of them were closeted back in the, in the mid 90s mm -hmm. versus now? Oh. Mm -hmm. um, it's a far different society. And, and, and a big part of it, I call it the Dick Cheney effect. <laughs> and, the, and I say that because, of course, Dick Cheney was very much against gay marriage until he, had, until he found out he had a gay daughter. Yep. And I think a lot of people uh, felt the same way. They were very much against gay marriage until they knew someone who was gay and they're like, oh, 
oh, I guess it's not an, an abomination as if you like from your story, right? Right. So in my notes, you're going to get a, a link to a book called How to Think Theologically. And it's written by uh, a couple of seminary professors, but it is a very nice read. It's not a, it's not full of jargon and yeah. whatnot. And, and they maintain that everybody is a theologian. You have to have a bunch of letters after your name to be able to take your formation in your tradition and match it up to what's going on either in your life or in current events and make an assessment about, you know, the rights and wrongs and the, uh, you know, what's, what's happening and what would need to be changed. Right. They call this, and, and, and we, if we grow up in a religious tradition, we, we receive teaching from our parents, of course, our grandparents, uh, church elders, or, you know, whatever. This is called an embedded theology. And sometimes we are embedded with theology that is bad. Sometimes the theology that we are taught is not good theology. And this is what you're talking about with Dick Cheney and his daughter, Liz. Um, what happens is in a situation like that, where somebody in the church has, has you know, has a very anti-gay attitude, it's because they have this embedded theology. And then they are confronted with this embedded theology when someone dear to them comes out. Right. And that's typically when somebody is going to change their mind about LGBT. It's not all the stuff, you know, you hear and read and see. It's yeah. if somebody you love, you are at risk of losing because of your attitude. Right. Which is what happened to my dad. Would my dad be accepting and supportive of LGBT people had it not been for me? Probably not. No. But he, and he had a hard time. I we're think great. They, we're great now. But he had to really work at it because he wasn't going to lose me. I think, it was, and I think that we started seeing that socially um, on television, et cetera. Like when we yeah. started seeing people like Ellen, yeah. Like, oh, I like Ellen though. Yeah. Right. Like there really? were a lot of people right. like, yeah, but I liked Ellen. Yeah. And they had to be like, oh, I guess. Um, and you wish for a lot of folks, and this is going to lead to my last question. Um, okay. But uh, it's just been a fascinating discussion. But um, when I think when that you'd love to see people have that, um, to have that perspective and that embracement of all people right universally without having mm -hmm. to know somebody like without it having to affect you it, uh -huh. it, it kind of makes it about you you should be able to love gay people without having to have without having to find out that one of your kids was right you should have yeah. had ideally yes right. <laughs> ideally but that's just not how I, it ideally that's true Which, ideally uh, you should you know be able to res respect black people right without being one or having without a being friend and without like having to get to know every black person. Right. I right. could grow up. You'd like to think that if I grew up in a place like, I don't know, in Norway. Yeah. Right, that I, I would still, I could grow up in a small town in Norway and have never seen a black person, but still known that they're e my equal. And well, they don't have, they don't have the baggage that we have. No, that's exactly. We have a, a racist long history. Oh. A racist reading of other people is in our societal DNA. It's ironic given that we're, you know, the melting pot. We, yeah. we don't necessarily melt that well. No, uh, what that really means is assimilate to whiteness. Yeah, it kind of does. Yeah. 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 Um, 
but getting back to the last question, because I, I wanted to um, wrap up with this, and that was, um, do you think that you need to be Christian as somebody who is so advocate, such a great advocate for social justice that you have um, spent a pretty good portion of a lifetime um, pushing for the for the full embracement of um, of pe marginalized people? Do you think that you need to be Christian to be committed to the causes of social justice? Um, what do you think is the relationship between one's theology and one's commitment to the well-being of, of others? Do we this is a really good question. grounded religiously? This is a really good question. And no, I don't think that at all. I live in Southeast Michigan. We are home to the largest Muslim Arab population in the world outside of the Middle East. And may I say, we have some really fine Middle Eastern food here. <laughs> uh, uh, Islam and Judaism, uh, there's a very, very active, um, prominent Jewish community in the Detroit metro area. Those are the what we call the three Abrahamic faiths, um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, all of those folks uh, are capable of working for social justice. I uh, you know, I alluded earlier to the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, these faiths, as long as several other Asian and uh, Far East religions represented here in Southeast Michigan, all have, operate from the same premise. And that is the place where interfaith coalitions are built. That's how we work together with a, a diverse group of people in terms of beliefs and ethnicities and so on can work for social justice. For, uh, as we say in our baptismal covenant, and it may sound familiar to you, I don't know, but to respect the dignity of every human being. So, I don't think that you have to have a non-secular approach to working for justice. Because it was interesting, because I was just going to say, because you mentioned uh, other faiths, but what about agnostics or atheists? Well, that, you know, that's, uh, that's where humanism comes in. Uh, right. Their primary premise is that, you know, uh, the good of humanity is capable of working towards justice. And I think that's true. I happen to think that it has a divine inspiration, but you know, that that's my belief, and I don't try to impose that necessarily on others. The great Trappist monk, Thomas Merton, said that within each of us is a divine spark. And what we, you know, and I agree with that. Then then what we choose to do with it remains to be seen. Now. Atheists and agnostics may not like that last part, but, um, <laughs> you know, um, I do believe that there, there is something, something in us that is, defies definition. But it doesn't need to have an organized religion. It doesn't. Right, right. Like that divine spark doesn't have to be defined within the, within the context of any particular, right, any particular system, systemic religious system right so uh, I agree mm -hmm. yeah yeah 
Well, Marsha, uh, and I'm going to give the full title again because it's just so impressive and it's an incredibly wonderful discussion. Um, Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford, civil rights attorney, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm going to uh, please send along the notes. I will include them uh, so that everyone can take a look at them uh, and, and do some uh, further reading on today's discussion. It was absolutely fascinating. Um, thank you again. I hope that you'll come back and be a guest again. We can certainly go in a lot of different directions. I would absolutely love to do that, Stephen. And um, I've got a book coming out uh, later in the year or sometime. <laughs> and I'll, I'll let you know when that's going to happen too and keep you posted. But um, I'd like to just mention to people that you can go to that website, Political Theology Matters. And there's uh, some free downloads to learn about faith-based advocacy and a couple of free classes. And you can learn all kinds of stuff. And I'd just like to invite you to visit and take a look at the blog and what we're doing. Folks, thank you uh, so much. Please go and uh, check out Marsha's website. Uh, obviously, uh, fascinating stuff. At the very least, I know I want to go and read your series on the seven uh, I thought that part of our discussion was really fascinating. So hopefully this will uh, intrigue a lot of folks, get them to uh, check out some of what you do. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day.